Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today argues that everything is changing fast apart from how we behave. Our behaviors, our ways of thinking and making decisions have changed little with traditional wisdom being that improvements are best made incrementally. Just as big established corporations increase profits incrementally and governments will make changes incrementally. But the problems we now need to solve require a revolution in thinking and behavior in order to avoid disaster. He lays out the reality of the dangerous situation we find ourselves in and suggests solutions to empower everyone, including business people, politicians, diplomats, and teachers, to repair the damage we have already done and prepare for the dramatic changes ahead. Over a 30-year period, our guest has founded and bought 20 companies in nine countries. He is an Emmy Award winner and author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Total Rethink, Why Entrepreneurs Should Act Like Revolutionaries. David McCourt, welcome to the show. Aiden, it's my pleasure. It's great to be with you today. Thanks for joining us, David. And thanks also to our sponsor of today's show, Microsoft for Startups. And don't forget, you can win one of two copies of Total Rethink by signing up to our newsletter, theinnovationshow.io. So David, let's dive in. You start the book by saying, we need positive revolutions in the ways we think and do things if we are going to be successful as individuals and if we're going to improve the lives of the majority of the people on this planet. Positive revolutions could also avert the potential conflicts brewing between those whose lives are improving and those who are being left behind by the increasing speed of change. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you why I I say that, Aiden. Because from the Industrial Revolution up until, let's say, the 90s, most problems were coming at us incrementally. So whether it was a business problem or whether it was a personal problem, you could deal with them with incremental solutions. Today, everything is moving so fast and the problems are coming at us so fast you need to blow up the model and, and rethink everything. And if you don't use words like revolutionary, you can't get people to think big enough because people are usually afraid to think really, really big. They want to think in an incremental way. They want to think in small steps because it's easier on them. It's, it's less scary, but it just doesn't work. I was reading the reviews on Amazon on my book and there was, you know, I was very blessed and humbled by all the good reviews, but there was one review and someone said, you know, anybody that talks about revolution and Che Guevara, I'm going to throw his book out, you know? So it, it wasn't, you know, I'm not suggesting that we need an armed revolution to take over civilized world, but I am suggesting that we have to think in a much more revolutionary way, in a much more entrepreneurial way. And by that, I don't mean everybody should be an entrepreneur or everybody should start their own business. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that The groups of people that we now call the critical workers, right? The essential workers, policemen and women, firemen and women, teachers, all these people, the healthcare workers, all these people that we need to make the world work, we've sort of been ignoring them for so long and just looking at them as sort of 
necessary, relatively low paid workers, and they are lower paid than they were before, dollar for dollar, inflation adjusted, they're getting less money for doing more work. That's another problem. If you want to be a game changer and really make a difference, then you have to visualize the future you want to live in. You have to imagine yourself already there and look back and paint a picture of the route you're going to take to get you there. And to do that, you have to think more like a revolutionary. I have to say, David, I changed the intro. I usually don't say much about the guest. I just focus on the book. But I did it for a reason, because throughout the book, on many occasions, I was struck by your sense of fairness and justice. And it shone through in things that you said. Here's an example. Both the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution brought enormous benefits to the human race, but they also created great injustices and conflicts of interest, many of which we are still wrestling with centuries later. Many wonder why, for instance, a man who inherits a coal mine should be so better rewarded than the miner who risks his life every day as he toils under the ground. Why should land that once belonged to everyone be stripped of trees and parceled up to become the property of one farmer or one person with the wealth to invest, as happened in the agricultural revolution. Yet it is indisputable that both these revolutions did far more good for the collective human family than it did bad. We're entering into mass disruption, mass change, and the gaps are going to get even bigger. Look, life is unfair, so I'm not suggesting that we're going to be able to fix all the parts of life that that are unfair because that's just the way the world works. However, as we progress as a society, we've sort of lost touch with the fact that businesses are supposed to make a profit, and contribute to the communities they do business in. Policymakers, sure, they have to get reelected, but they're supposed to deliver policy that's good for everyone. Instead, what we've done is we've got politicians and policymakers that only care about getting reelected, and we've got business people that, in general, are more concerned with making a profit than contributing to the communities they do business in. And that's bad, and we've let both those things happen, and we've let the politicians start a war on businesses, which is wrong because we need successful businesses to make the world work and make our communities work. And businesses have been fighting with politicians and saying that you're just trying to put regulation in front of us and taxes in front of us and you're not contributing at all. All you're worried about is getting reelected. And that's bad. So we've got the policymakers and the capitalists fighting. And then at the coalface, the everyday worker, the bottom is producing more but getting paid less. You know, I saw a statistic in the New York Times last week that said if you work in a slaughterhouse, and this is in America, there's an American statistic, you're getting paid $12,000 less per year than you were 50 years ago in, in today's dollars, right? Adjusted for inflation. You're getting $12,000 less a year, you're producing three times as much output. So if technology has allowed you to produce three times as much output, you should be getting paid some amount, let's call it 12,000 more per year, not less. 
as we get more efficient and we get better at producing goods and services, those people doing that work should be getting rewarded more. They should get a bigger piece of it. But what's happened is that, and part of this is private equity that have that their model works, Aiden, as you know, where they have to return the capital in, in sort of three to five year cycles. So they're forced to go in and strip a business of long-term thinking. And if, if a business has, say, 100 stores, they look at the bottom store and they say, okay, if we take the bottom 10% of the stores and we get rid of them, our average revenue per store goes up. Our average revenue per employee goes up. Our EBITDA goes up. Our cash flow goes up. You know, all the matrix look better if you get rid of the low performing ones, but they don't really take a look and say, those low performing stores, they are contributing something to the community. There are people employed by in that store. There is a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter that's making money in this store. There is a product that's being delivered to the community in that store. So another way to look at it is say, let's take the 10 best performing stores and take those people and send them to the 10 worst performing stores to teach them how to perform better. Let's lift them up. Let's make the worst better instead of just chopping it off all the time. So that's a, a you know a different way of looking at it that might make a little bit less money, but makes a better long-term business. And businesses used to, Aiden, you know, the concept of a shareholder was a concept that's been around for 100 years of, of people that hold on to shares for the long term. We globally have share traders now, not shareholders. No one's looking at the long term. And I say no one, that's unfair. Most people aren't looking at the long term. And they're not looking at the overall contribution to the community. And, and that's unfortunate. And not sure that's going, that's going away anytime soon unless businesses recognize if we don't make the change as business people, some politician is going to force the change upon us. And that politician probably doesn't have the skill set or the knowledge of business to make the right decision. They'll just make a knee-jerk decision that'll make businesses more socialistic and less capitalistic, make businesses less efficient in a desire to spread the wealth. When the best solution is for businesses to recognize the mistakes they've made over the last 50 years and be more fair at distributing the wealth themselves, be more fair at contributing to communities they do business in and make the changes themselves. There's something you said in the book, David, that reminded me of the old concept of organizations now Bearing in mind, this was the industrial revolution, those type of times here in Ireland, for example, we had the Guinness family and you had organizations then like Unilever and Lord Unilever. They built the business from scratch, but they also gave back to the community. For example, they built housing and they built communities, etc. And I mentioned that to say taxation brackets and taxation is a kind of a one size fits all approach. while some people like entrepreneurs, like the original Guinnesses, for example, or the Lord Unilever, they build organizations or they build businesses that give back to the community. They're creative, they're active versus a passive investor 
who makes money from their money. And you say they should be taxed differently. Yeah, absolutely. Look, let's say you and I go out, we start a coffee shop, and then we decide that we want to sell that and we want to, we found a hole in the supply chain where we think that we can grind coffee and distribute it to hundreds of coffee shops around Ireland or whatever business we come up with. And we want to sell that one small business and start another small business that we think is going to be bigger. And we think it's going to employ more people. And we think it's going to be more expansive. I just think that that should be taxed differently than someone that's buying and selling stocks or bonds or something. I, I just think that there's got to be some recognition for in some break for people who are risking. And you know what it's like to start a business. You have to risk everything. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you have to go home and tell your spouse you're putting another mortgage on the house and you're risking everything. You're risking not only all your hours, your nights, your Saturdays, your Sundays, your holidays, you're risking all your money. And if it works and you're able to employ five or 10 people, and then you have another idea that might employ 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 people, I just think that could be some thought into an entrepreneur or a small business tax scheme that's different than people that are buying and selling passively. It, as you said, it used to be when business first started, businesses always knew that they were there to make a profit and to contribute to the community. And you use Unilever and Guinness as, a, as examples. Now, I think employees are treated as commodities more and more. And hence, the employee then treats the employer as a commodity and they change jobs quicker for an extra 5P. They change jobs. So that sense of community within the company and the sense of the company contributing to the community they do business in has gone away to a certain extent. And we need to bring that back. Aiden, because like I said earlier, if we don't make a change as business people, some policymaker will be forced to make a change for us and they won't be as equipped at, they won't have the arrows in their quiver or their tools in their toolkit to make those changes because they've never been in business, but they'll have to do the best they can and they'll make, you know, unfortunately, some of the things they'll do is, 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 around sound bites to get reelected as opposed to really trying to solve the problem, but it won't help business and it won't ultimately help solve the problem long-term. It will be a short-term fix. You know, you got Bernie Sanders in the States that, you know, always talks about tearing down the top 1%. We need politicians to stop talking about tearing down something and talk about building up something. We need to get, we need to focus on building up the bottom more than tearing down the top. And that's a, a better talk track that everybody can get around. Let's solve the problem by building up the bottom. Let's figure out, and we can use that analogy of the 10 shops again. Let's go back and figure out why the 10 at the bottom aren't working and fix them. And let's work from the bottom up. That's sort of the thesis in my book. Coming back to the futility of incremental change, we mentioned this at the top of the show. It's one of your core concepts. You say, traditional wisdom has been that improvements in the lot of the poor are best done incrementally, day by day, month by month, year by year. It is the same principle as the one followed by established corporations 
when they are planning to increase their revenues and profits incrementally, a few percentage points each year. Conservative by nature because they have a lot to protect, established corporations try to generate new profits without endangering their existing sources of incomes, which is fine, but it's the way they do so that you highlight here, because organizations do need to protect today because that's what fuels tomorrow. But it's by cutting costs and shrinking their workforces rather than being bold and trying out new initiatives or creating new businesses that really frustrates you. And I hear you here, man, because rather than using the profits to build a new tomorrow, they're whittling away yesterday. So they're actually living in the past rather than living to a vision of what tomorrow could bring. If you look globally at the problem set, the old jobs, you know, you can talk about really old jobs like coal mining or secretaries. Talk about any of the jobs that have been around. You can make a list of the, of, of the top 50 jobs over the last 100 years. They're declining at a faster rate than ever in the history of the civilized world. The need for the new jobs are at the steepest slope they've ever been in the last 100 years. But yet the educational system and the training is relatively flat. We train people, we educate people roughly the same way for the last 100 years, but the new jobs that we need around public health and clean energy and digital technology and electric vehicles and remote working and remote health, all these new jobs are at the steepest slope they've ever been. And that just tells you that the problem's going to get worse, not better. And we need a whole rethinking of the education system. We need a rethink of jobs and training. We obviously need a rethinking of public health. We've learned in this coronavirus that public health and the economy are intricately connected. And we know that we're living in a global world now, regardless of you know any politician saying that we're not, and then we just got to think about our own country. We're, we're in a global society, so we're only as strong as the weakest link, which is why leadership in rethinking is so critical. And it's also why good connectivity to everyone, a business I'm in, is, is also so important. You can't run telemedicine if you don't have connectivity to everyone. All the stuff is difficult and interconnected and totally needs to be rethought, Aiden. And most politicians want to make short-term decisions. And most businesses just want to make a profit. So we've got a train wreck on our hands if we don't have a total rethink. I loved what you said, David, about immigrants. I'm not saying this because you are one as a fellow Irish man whose family went over years ago to the US, but I really loved this metaphor of immigrants because you said that immigrants worked harder because necessity is the mother of invention, essentially, and therefore they took greater risks than the indigenous populations that they now lived amongst because the indigenous people largely grew comfortable and too risk-adverse to achieve the same levels of success. Immigrants are actually the best equipped people to make the necessary changes for the future. I love that as a concept because it's exactly what happens in large organizations where entrepreneurs are the immigrants taking the risks, large organizations are the ones defending and saving what they already have. Of course, when you have no choice, 
you get very disciplined. And you know better than anyone the discipline you can point anywhere. You know this. You're you're a an example of this. And and if you have if you if you if if you're you know fighting for your survival and to pay the rent and to and to make sure you can feed your family, that's the type of thinking that we want. That's the type of cutting edge thinking when you're hungry and you're you're fighting for survival, literally in some cases. That's the type of thinking we want. When you get comfortable and you get too comfortable, you get lazy and you lose your discipline and you lose your edge. Doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how talented you are, you lose your edge and you lose your discipline. You know, that's what made America great. America is a country of hopes and dreams. People came here from all over the world to America because it was a country of hopes and dreams. And it was a place you could start a business and you could fail and people would help you up. Your neighbor would give you a hand and help you up. And you never lost your hope and never lost your dream because anything was possible. Anything was possible for anyone. That's the idea that America equals. Anything is possible for anyone. And if we don't change course, of course, we won't be the country of hopes and dreams, which is a another problem for another show. But that immigrant mentality of anything is possible, and I have a dream, my heart and my soul is full of hope, that that's what makes the world exciting. That's what causes problems to get solved. That's what makes life exciting. That's what makes living exciting. That's how problems get solved. And cutting off the immigrant flow to America is among the stupidest idea I've ever heard because it's the fabric that's made up. It's what makes America work. You know, in New York City, you walk down the street and you hear 10 different languages. 50% of small businesses in New York are started by immigrants. 50%, 12.5% nationwide, but New York City, 50%. And small businesses are started by immigrants all the time. And 75% of new jobs come from small businesses. So it's, it's absolutely what should be embraced. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should embrace it. It's exactly the wrong thing to be afraid of. You go on to say how there's a widening gap, and it's quite obvious in places like Silicon Valley, for example, where Amazon and Apple are wealthier than some nations. But we should not forget and vilify their wealthy shareholders, you say. It's far too easy for politicians to point fingers at these people and accuse them of being the problem. So you're pointing upwards as, as the problem. When in fact, they are often the ones inventing the solutions. Where the inequality in earnings is less defensible, you say, is when executives who have created nothing, who do not put their own money at risk, are hired to run the big companies and are paid millions of dollars simply for doing their jobs, or in some cases, even paid millions of dollars for not doing their jobs. This really got me thinking because I thought about the 08, 09 downturn that we're, we just seem to be getting out of and now we're, I don't know what we're entering into now again, but so many of those executives who got us into that mess and who profited from it escaped scot-free and it was the middle class and the lower classes who were left to mop up the mess, clean up the mess, experience the consequences and still are in so many ways. When people talk about rich business people, it really should be 
two different buckets. People that are hired to run a business that they didn't start, someone that's hired to run a company is very different from someone who started a company. Someone who started a company and risked everything and, and, and risked literally putting food on their table or risked making rent payment. They just risked everything to start a business. Very different than someone that was hired to run an existing company that someone else might have started 100 years ago. And they, they shouldn't be put in the same bucket. That's number one. And then number two, we have another problem happening in Silicon Valley, which is these tech companies are becoming so big and so powerful that people are starting to rightfully attack them. And where that attack comes from is, and they do fall in, Aiden, they do fall in the bucket of they created their own company, although we're now getting to a second generation. You know, Steve Jobs is, is come and gone, and, and we have other people running Apple, and we have other people running Microsoft, and we have other people running some of those companies and, you know, HP and these companies are now being run by other people. So the amount of wealth they make should be very different than the amount of wealth the people who started those companies. But some of these social media companies and some of these tech companies that you mentioned, like, like Facebook, where they're going to get in trouble is they're making money off other people's data. And, and people don't quite understand that, but something about it doesn't sit well with people. And, you know, when, when I started, I built the first competitive phone company in America. And at that time, the phone number was owned by the phone company. So when I, when I was offering service at 30% cheaper, people would say, yeah, I'd love to buy that. And then I'd say, you have to change your phone number. They were like, I don't know, no interest in changing my phone number. And it took me and hundreds of other people testifying before Congress to get what's called number portability so the phone number was actually owned by the consumer. So that took years and years and years of fighting to get that. Well, we also need data portability where the data is owned by the individual, not by some company. So that if it gets monetized, Aidan McCullen or Dave McCourt get a piece of however their data is monetized. So that change will come eventually. It will come, it'll take longer than it should. The regulators won't understand it. So it'll, it'll be changed by some entrepreneur that starts a company where they share the data and they share the value of that data with everyone else. So some of those businesses should share more wealth with their customer base before someone unseats them. And eventually someone will unseat them because of that. That will be their downfall. Just like the monopoly phone companies, their downfall was they wanted to own everything. They wanted to charge you rent for your phone in your house. They wanted to own your phone number. They wanted to own the local cable. They wanted to own the long distance cable. They wanted to charge you a rent on your phone. And they wanted to charge you for your long distance call and your local call. And they didn't want to upgrade the, the network. And look, for 100 years, the only invention in the phone industry was the move from a, a dial phone to a push button phone. And then once that monopoly was broken, the phone is in your pocket, does everything. You will see a change in Silicon Valley, and it will take some entrepreneur to embrace that and make a business out of it. We could talk all day, and I'm skipping over loads of questions here, but you've met some brilliant people in your life, from dining in the White House with Ronald Reagan to dining in 10 Downing Street. And one, I'm sure, one person, I'm sure, you learned so much from, 
and a person who became a good friend of yours was Jack Welsh. He achieved remarkable results with General Electric. I, I quote just this little part to tee you up for this because I'd love to hear some of the lessons that he taught you. When Jack Welch was CEO of General Electric, the stock value went up 4,000% in 20 years. The company grew from 12 billion to 280 billion as a result of, among other things, his decision to shift into emerging markets. He also cut the number of people the company was employing by more than 100,000 in five years. He left in 2001 around the time of the dot-com bust, and at the time of writing this book, GE stock had not moved for 17 years. Soon after, he left the company, and you wrote him a letter saying that you'd like to come and see him. Jack, you know, recently died, as you know, and, and he was a good friend of mine. He did take the company from $12 billion to $280 billion, and, you know, the guy that took over after him for 17, 20 years, the stock didn't move at all. In fact, it was one of the greatest declines of corporate value we've ever seen. And I know when Jack died, there were a lot of stories in the press about how he had left a bad company and that's why, which is total bullshit. If Jack had been running the company in those two decades, he would have changed with the times. So Jack was someone I admired. I wrote him a letter what's commonly referred to as a cold call. He wrote me back a letter that said, look, thanks for the letter, but I'm too busy to see you. And then in, in pen, he wrote on the side of the letter, standard, meaning, you know, this is a standard letter. And this letter was in the fall. And the bottom, he said, look, call me after the holidays. Merry Christmas, Jack. So I called him after the holidays and asked him if I'd come see him. And he gave me four hours of his time. And I brought a notebook and I said, look, You've had a great 20-year career. I would just like to know everything that you can tell me that's important that you learned over those 20 years, and I'll take notes. And then after that, he became such a good friend, and he was so helpful to me. And he was a great business guy. And I know that people were critical of the fact that he cut jobs, but at that point, he had to, to make the company move into the digital age to make the company move into the next phase. But he spent a huge amount of time training people and a huge amount of employees left GE to become CEOs of other companies, Boeing and 3M and largest supermarket chain in America and Home Depot and all sorts of companies. He had basically had his own university in Connecticut where they trained people and they put people through management courses and he taught at it himself. And he was really into building people's talents up. And he supported them when they moved on to another company. He supported them when they moved on to other jobs because he wanted them to grow. And it just goes to show you how a cold call can work sometimes. And it also shows you that everyone, no matter how successful they are, needs a mentor. And I've been lucky to have a lot of them. Walter Scott, who's on the Berkshire Hathaway board, he's on Warren Buffett's board, he's been a mentor of mine. He's 89 now. Jack Welsh was a great mentor of mine. I've been lucky to have them. And I'm lucky that I had the balls to write him the letter. And I'm lucky that he was kind enough to let me come see him. And then we became friends. I mentioned to you, I'm writing my own book. And I write about this law of entropy, basically, which is essentially everything, everything tends from order to chaos. And 
everything decays, essentially. Everything's in a constant cycle of evolution. And I truly think this happens to people, David. And I believe they should not stay in a stagnant position for too long because it's going to be uncomfortable for them. They're not going to grow. And eventually it's going to come back and not have the most positive consequences. And you said, Jack told you, you should be disciplined and get rid of the bottom 10% of your employees each year because they may not think it, but you are doing them a favor because if they're not doing well with you, they need to move on. And he put his money where his mouth is, Aiden, because he ran, like I said, they, inside GE, they ran this, basically this university on training and learning and skills. So he would give you every opportunity to learn new skills and every opportunity to move your way up in the company. And if you couldn't, or you wouldn't, for some reason, his theory was, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that it's a bad fit. If for some reason, if you're stuck at the bottom, even though they built their own university, even though they put huge amounts of money into training in support of employees, if you still weren't able to make your way up, then it probably was the wrong company for you. And you need a wake up call to know that you just can't sit at the bottom. You can't, you know, you can't sit at the bottom of any organization for your whole career and expect to have a fulfilling life. You just can't. So someone needs to say to you, look, move on. Either find a different organization, find a different job, find a different path, but you need to do it at, at 32, not at 62. If you're stuck at the bottom and you're not making, barely making enough money to pay your rent, and people let you stay there, and then you're 50 years old and someone kicked you out the door, you have no skills, you have no other skills, you have no other connections, you still have rent to pay, you still have college tuition left to pay for your kids, and it, it, that's a really scary place to be. So his theory was, let's do everything we can to support people, everything we can to train people. Let's be cutting edge on how we train people and new skills. But if it still doesn't work, and they're not moving up in the organization, let's tell them. And do them a favor and tell them early and young so they can go do something else. There was a, a valuable lesson your late mother, may she rest in peace, taught you, David. And I think it's such an important lesson to draw out from the book, especially in this age of abundance, where more people die of obesity than they do of starvation. And it goes like this. You said so many people go through life claiming that something else, something that happened them years before is a reason that they have not been as successful as they would have liked to have been. But you say setbacks happen to everyone and you can always start again. If you have one goal and you fail to attain it, for whatever reason, you simply need to forget about it and create some new goals. And so many people want to be, and this is something I talked to Jack Welsh about. So many people want to blame other people for their problems. And it's a really bad behavior trait. And if you keep on thinking that way for long enough, it actually gets embedded in your DNA. And you think that's the way the world works. You think everybody's against you and you just keep on getting the short straw. And everything is someone else's fault. And you get very, very bitter and you, you can't think straight because you look at the world as everyone else is lucky except for you. And I, and I recognize that, that it's not as easy as saying, 
get up every day and pull yourself up by the bootstraps because some people don't have any boots, you know, to pull themselves up with. So I, I get that. But the majority of us that are lucky enough and blessed enough to be healthy and, you know, have a roof over our head, that's 99% of the game. So if you have someone you love and someone that loves you and you have a roof over your head, you're 99% of the way there. So don't be blaming anyone else for your problems. Just get on with it. And as my mother said, and I quote her at the end of the book, you know, recognize that someone else has it worse than you. And no matter what happens, just know that someone else has it worse than you that day, that moment. So just move forward. Don't look back and just keep on moving forward. And that's good advice my mother gave me. It's good advice Jack Welch gave me. And I think it's a much more interesting way to live your life than keep on blaming other people for your problems, which so many people do. And I think more people do it now than did it, say, 50 years ago. I think the new generation, to use your word, the generation of abundance is much more apt, I think, to blame other people than that immigrant culture that we were talking about a half an hour ago. I think it's much more prevalent today, unfortunately. But it's not going to serve you well. Blaming other people for your misfortune is not going to serve you well. Without a vision, and let's just change that word vision to dream for a minute because it's a sexier word, right? Without a dream, life is black and white. Life is far less interesting without hopes and dreams. And if you're lucky enough, which most of us are, to have a roof over your head, you know, some of us have bigger roofs than others, but if you're lucky enough to have a roof over your head and someone that loves you and someone you love, then like it's all about your dream. And it's all about having hopes and dreams that evolve as you learn. And, and hopefully those dreams get bigger and you turn those dreams into a vision and into a plan. And as I said in my book, you visualize yourself accomplishing that and you work backwards to a plan to get yourself there. And that's what makes life exciting and, and vibrant and, and worthwhile, not stuff. Stuff usually gets in the way and has to be cleaned and someone's trying to steal it. You know, it has to be locked up and it has to be insured. And it takes a lot of energy to, you know, have a lot of stuff. And it takes energy away from other things that are far more interesting. In my view, look, other people have a different view, obviously, but you know, I've had a lot of stuff in my life. It's just of it's it's less rewarding than, you know, what I'm doing now. A reminder, our show today is brought to you by Microsoft Startups. David, for people who want to find out more about you, more about your book, where can they find you? The book, Total Rethink, is published by Wiley, the same person that's gonna publish your book. And you know, you can get that on Amazon or at any bookstore, or hopefully any any good independent bookstore would have it. And they can follow me on social media, you know, at DC McCourt on Instagram and Twitter or LinkedIn. So at DC McCourt or pick up the book and then DM me and tell me what you think of the book. Hopefully someone will learn something from it. It was my humble attempt at telling my story and, and hopefully some of my learnings. I've been blessed to have an interesting life. So hopefully someone will learn something from the book. We only actually got through probably two chapters of the book today. 
So there is two copies up for grabs. Just sign up for the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win one of two copies for Total Rethink, Why Entrepreneurs Should Act Like Revolutionaries. And I'd like to thank the author of that book, today's guest, David McCourt. Thank you for joining us. Aiden, it's my pleasure. It was a great way to spend an hour with you and your audience. Thank you so much.